Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem podcast. Welcome. Today is a topical, freigesprochene episode in which I freely speak, that's what I just said in German, about this question, does reading encourage writing? And this is a question that I have come back and back to in my many years of reading and my many years of writing in classes, outside of classes, for various venues and avenues and as I'm in this space right now of applying not only for grad schools and grad programs abroad, I'm also looking at writing, what writing looks like as a hobby, what writing looks like as something to do in my free time, as a fun activity to switch my brain off a little bit from the academic writing that I'm doing. I'm writing a thesis right now, so there's just a lot of ways in which writing right now has become a centerpiece in my life, I think in a more profound or maybe a more immediate way than it was, say, a year ago. I was still applying for grants, still working on the thesis, and yet there's even more writing nowadays. So we did used to do more topical episodes like this one before, i.e. a year ago, two years ago, something along those lines on this show. I really love topical episodes because Aside from giving me a chance to go off script for an episode, or at least just follow some loose notes, they give me a chance to engage with you guys in a way that I don't often get to when we're just reviewing a book. I mean, there are of course discussion questions, etc. Um, that are based on the text, but we're kind of all confined to the text in that situation. So I love being able to sit down and have a chat with you all and engage, hopefully, in the comments later. You can go to relevanceofliterature.com notes and click on the show notes for this particular episode. I've got all my sources in there. I've got a couple links today and a couple books that I will mention. So everything that you need when we're done here will be there, including the comment section if you want to leave any insightful thoughts, any questions, any criticisms of the way that I tackle this question, this topic today. Of course, nowadays on the podcast, we do a lot more book reviews. This is your chance. If you want to tell me, hey Mackenzie, I want you to do more topical episodes like this, let me know in the comments for today's episode. More reviews is, of course, again, a double-edged sword. There is more content for you all, and I think people tend to like book reviews more. They have a really structured, consistent type of format for me as I'm doing preparations. It is more time, etc., but again, it's so predictable in that regard, and I think people super enjoy being able to touch base with different bookish topics and i.e books, literature, short stories, poems, etc. every week, and that's definitely something that this podcast aims to deliver <laughs> to the world. So 
it is a double-edged sword, um, but I think overall a good change from the feedback that I have gotten so far. So, of course, the question for today, does reading encourage writing? And to clarify, when you read more, does that make you want to write more? And the reason why I am at least somewhat qualified to answer this particular question is, of course, because I have been reading a book a week for the past six years. I don't plan on slowing down anytime soon. I was actually going to plan on slowing down maybe in the next year or maybe even this year. I wasn't sure really, but I read What Is It All But Luminous by Art Garfunkel and Art Garfunkel part of Simon and Garfunkel, the musical experience. I just love them. Such great music. He wrote an autobiography recently, I believe 2019-2020, somewhere in there, and he is an avid reader. Like, he reads as much as and more often than I do, Um, and he has no plans of stopping, it seems like. Um, and just kind of what he was talking about with regards to what reading has brought him and sort of the interest that he's had in reading, what it's done in terms of it seemed like it was really a way for him to relax or sort of just exit the world for a minute. Um, And I definitely have periods in my life where reading serves that purpose for me. Um, I do often talk about reading as escapism and kind of the pitfalls that you can get into when you do view reading that way, but I think that it can also, when used intentionally, be such a good tool for you decompressing, completing the stress cycle, as Nagoski and Nagoski would say, in Burnout, which we'll talk about a bit later as well. So I was thinking about maybe pausing or at least decreasing the amount of reading I was doing, especially as I was heading into this super busy season of grad school stuff. And then I realized that my lifestyle and my life in general has become so integrated with this amount of reading and the amount that I get out of reading so much hasn't slowed or stopped. It's changed quite a bit for sure. I used to get a lot of writing, kind of intro to writing advice from my reading. So when I first started this challenge, I did it because I wanted to read all the books that my English class wouldn't cover (laughs) because I had a class that wouldn't cover like Grapes of Wrath or Catch-22, Frankenstein, and those were just books that I thought that I shouldn't leave high school without. So I read a lot of American literature and literature that was essentially just like English, high school English type literature that year and wanted to do not only a preview of what literature was going to be like for my life moving forward after high school, but also figuring out how I could become a better writer through what I was reading. So nowadays I read a lot just for analysis sake and I love comparative literature. It's just one of my like favorite things in this world. (laughs) So you will often see me in episodes on this show, for example, especially like horrifying classics or any series that we do, any Dickens especially. 
I will compare to other work of theirs that I've read, other work of people in the time period or perhaps that literary tradition that I've read, even just works across genre or across time period. Um, I do a lot of comparison nowadays uh, and I think you know, that quote from Faulkner that I quote incessantly now, especially on Patreon, where if you light a match in the wilderness, in the forest, and the dark, it's not to light a specific path in the forest for you to go down, it's to see how much more darkness there is. And I love that metaphor as a metaphor for literature when you read a book, when you open a book, it's not to light your way down a specific path in the literature, it's to realize how much more literature there is and how much more of the tradition there is and perhaps you will never get to. <laughs> I think I love that kind of ceaseless, limitless component of reading uh, and it tickles my fancy, I think, much in the way that music will. There's never a point where I'm going to be good enough at the oboe <laughs> or a good enough musician for the rest of my life. It's, it's a constant battle and it's constantly figuring out not only my own limitations, but how to overcome them in a feasible and sustainable way over time to create beauty in the world. And I think with literature, of course, it's not really about creating unless you turn around and make a podcast about it or something. <laughs> but in personal reading like that, it's a lot about, in your mind, engaging with something beyond yourself. And I think you can get great meaning over time out of that. So the first approach that I'm going to discuss with regards to this question, does reading encourage writing, I'm going to call the modern day approach. And the modern day approach is how I would have traditionally answered this question. Maybe if you'd asked me pre-COVID, this is how I would have thought through the answer to this question. Again, this is a question that I've thought about since I started this reading challenge of sorts. And of course, part of the reason why I started reading so much was because, and not even the quantity, it was the intensity with which I read and the energy and the time that I brought to it, I think that mattered more towards, you know, what I wanted to get out of it with writing and with other aspects, other benefits of this challenge than, of course, the quantity. In any case, it's been a question that I've had stock in for a long time, as I said. So I would have said something about creation versus consumption. And I was under the impression that some people just wanted to create more than others. And some people just were comfortable in this kind of consumption mode and some people get very uncomfortable in the consumption mode and they just have to turn around and create something. And I would describe myself as the latter type of person, someone who, when I am just watching YouTube videos, I get so frustrated and I have all this pent up creative energy and I must turn it around and reflect that back on the world somehow and produce something and contribute something. Um, and maybe that urge to create does lie in the contribution aspect of the whole endeavor. <laughs> But I realized that there's a lot in this world that contradicts 
the model that I just set up, that some people are more geared towards creation and some are just geared toward consumption. And I think the most relevant or perhaps the most obvious contradictory example for that is the internet, right? When the internet opened, it allowed anyone and everyone to create if they so chose. And we see, of course, you know, there's huge, the internet is hugely competitive, for example, and there's, of course, a dichotomy between successful creators and unsuccessful creators, you know, the top, like, 001% of Twitch versus everyone else in the pool, but that doesn't have bearing on who is creating. Um, it's sort of like when one, when YouTube opened, for example, and the first YouTubers started uploading content, everyone and their mother got their video camera out and started uploading to YouTube. I remember like in the early, early 2000s when YouTube was first becoming, growing, <laughs> becoming larger, all my neighbors, <laughs> the neighborhood kids, would get out their video cameras and film skateboarding and other such activities, hiking, and it wasn't something where only people who were creative <laughs> were creating, it was like everyone was creating, and I think that nowadays you have to, or rather I have to, as this is my theory, uh, hold this distinction with greater nuance, right? So I really think that creation and consumption are both, of course, within everyone. And I'm not sure if, I'm not sure what the mechanism is for creation, right? If you have to be, for example, more courageous to create more, or if you have to have kind of a, a spark to create more, I'm not sure. But I think creation and consumption coexist in a sense that I didn't before. And in terms of this question, I would have answered it something like, if you have more creative tendencies than consumptive tendencies, then of course, the more you read, the more pent-up frustration you would get, and the more you would want to write, or more, the more you would be encouraged to write. The nuance that I want to add to this, though, is something that I've learned over time, and especially, I think, through, throughout the pandemic, which is that consume while consuming content is inspiring and for people like me you get pent up and you get sort of this urge to create no matter what and the more you consume at least the more i consume the more i want to create and produce but i also realize that there's a point at which the tables turn and technology and reading things that you use or you once used to relax, become addictive, and we don't always have the mental hardware nowadays to stop ourselves from continuing down that path of just consuming, 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 right? Because consuming is, in my view and also in my research, which I'll talk about in a minute, far easier, or at least a step easier than producing. And 
the addictive ruts that we can get into in terms of consumption, right, are aided nowadays by not only the ease, right, of accessing content, any content. It could be a YouTube video, it could be a book, it could be a podcast. Maybe quite ironic that I'm talking about this on a podcast, but okay. And it's more engineered than it has ever been, right? So one of the goals on a lot of social media platforms and a lot of just, I think, hardware and software on technology in general is to design it in such a way that you use it more and that you don't want to stop using it. And I think especially for kids who either haven't had good boundaries with technology before, so, or, for example, haven't lived before the onset of technology as I have and a lot of people of my generation have, it just gets increasingly impossible to set boundaries and set limits with technology. So I lived before the onset of technology, right? I'm old in that way, somewhat, and I still have just problems setting up boundaries for technology. And I think that's something that our brains kind of don't have control over in some ways anymore. Um, if you want to know more about the root of why I'm talking about this, you should go to the Netflix documentary. It's called The Social Dilemma, and it talks about the very reason why technology developed in the way that it's developed and sort of the really scary implications of all of that. And also one interesting fact, which is a lot of people who in technology development don't allow their children to participate in technology in the way that a lot of other teens, for example, preteens are. And that's something that I'm wildly interested in, especially since a lot of my vested interests are in older <laughs> subjects in general and require hard copies and things of that nature. Podcasting is like one of the newest things that I'm engaged with in, in that sense. So kind of the addictive quality I think can take away from your ability to produce and when you know when you're in that addictive loop rabbit hole where it's like okay next book next book and it's like okay i need to listen to this audiobook for 10 hours which i've totally done in one day um stephen king's the institute is one audiobook that i just binged for some reason and a lot of stephen king audiobooks now that i think about it but there's that point at which the addiction takes away either in terms of your energy toward that you would otherwise put towards creation or in terms of the time maybe as well you could think of it that way or in terms of just your capacity to create I think that when you get into that addictive rut it takes a while to get out and nowadays so we have this right there's lower barrier barriers to entry when you create something so therefore more people have a venue for creation more people i'm not sure if more people are creating or if it, there's just more noise around creation so for example you know in the middle ages did people have time to create in the sense that we would view creation now 
Um, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I know a lot about medieval liturgy, but not a lot about medieval day-to-day -day life. If someone does, comment below and I'll mention it in the next episode. So we have this interesting setup in the modern day, right? Where we have more noise around people's creations than ever. And I think, you know, a lot of people will just jump on other people's bandwagons and that's the addictive rut in a sense um, where you get just so far down the rabbit hole that you're not creating meaningfully anymore and that's a good distinction to make whether it's meaningful or not meaningful and that's not I don't think for other people always to determine but it's there nevertheless. Is it just noise or is there purpose? Is there some sort of utility that you get out of what you're producing? And so we have this rise of the ability to at least publish this created work in some, in some often informal realm. And I think though that there's kind of this parallel rise and like self-criticism or self where doing something informally is one thing but doing something in a more formal or a more professional avenue is another and I think about a book that I read recently Burnout by Nagoski and Nagoski Emily Nagoski and her sister Amelia and it's about burnout, emotional exhaustion, right? And they bring up this really interesting metaphor from Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, which is there's this crazy wife that this guy in the book, spoiler alert, locks up, right, for the duration of the book. So there's this crazy woman in this attic. And that is a deeper sounding board for the idea that we all have a crazy woman in the attic. We all have this crazy version of ourselves, this harebrained version of ourselves living inside of us. And the form that that person or that mythological being inside of us takes, psychological being rather, is it, it's damaging for sure, but it takes different forms, right? So some people's might be their inner child, or some people's might be the uber-perfectionist, the best version of themselves that criticizes them every time they trip up just slightly. And I bring this up because writing any sort of creative endeavor, especially when you talk about the production and you actually sitting down and doing that creative endeavor, that's all going to be mitigated by your psychological approach to that art form, to whatever that production is. And, you know, I'll give an example. When you learn a language, and we'll talk very much more about this in a minute, when you learn a language, if you tell yourself in your internal monologue, if your crazy person inside tells yourself that you are not good at speaking that language, you're not going to speak as well. It doesn't matter if you're a completely fluent speaker of that language, you're not going to speak as well as if you believed, I am fluent, I am a great speaker of this language. 
psychologically you condition yourself to perform and to act a certain way and the hardest part in my experience in any creative endeavor whether it's podcasting or playing the oboe or writing is starting and whether or not you start is often predetermined by the stories you tell yourself or rather the stories that your crazy person in the attic tells yourself if those people in your attic i mean go unchecked then that can be a pretty disastrous situation for your creative production so in terms of does reading encourage writing we've gotten into a lot of nuance but one of my main takeaways as i have continued to approach this question over time is of course it's so contingent on the person and on what's going on inside of them and the kinds of influences that they're bringing in right we have mimetic desire that's one of the key takeaways from Luke Burgess's Wanting. It's a recent book out. And I'll give an example for me. Unquestionably, uh, reading encourages writing. It always has. And I explicitly used it for that purpose, right, when I first started. And over the past, I would say, three years of this challenge, I've done a lot more just writing for the sake of writing. No one's going to see it. You know, some fiction, some like journaling, other avenues, and it's just been fun. It's just been fun. Uh, you know, thought pieces that you would see, like in the New Yorker, for example. And then I have to think, but then I always love to write. I've always loved to write ever since I was little, and it's just such a bumpy road. And for me, it's so contingent on what, I, what I'm telling myself psychologically, if I'm telling myself, oh, no one will ever read this because it's not good enough, you know, then of course I'm not going to want to write as much as when I say it doesn't matter because it is good enough anyway. So, of course, it's going to depend on the person. But let's get into a more concrete theory, shall we? I do have a soft spot now for concrete theories. I didn't used to. But ever since this graduate school Fulbright stuff, it's been a good place to be when you have a concrete theory to rest on. So I'll talk a little bit about my expertise. I am, of course, a linguist by formal training. I am going to school for linguistics and music, so I technically have two expertises. <laughs> Um, if you want to put it that way, but I will be going to grad school for linguistics, at least at this point, so I will talk about my experience in the field. Um, so my particular area of inquiry, area of focus, is second language acquisition and, more broadly, foreign language acquisition. I've done a lot of teaching in the past few years of English as a second language speakers. I've also learned German from the beginning to the end. I just took my German college examinations for going to grad school in Germany. So it's been a long road, but I have been on both sides of the language learning and language teaching equation. 
And one thing that I often tell my students, especially when they're first starting out, is that the more you spend time on something, the more you're signaling to your brain that you value that thing and your brain needs to value that thing as well. I think about if you ride a bike, if you start learning how to do math, any sort of skill that you're trying to learn, the more time you spend on it, the better you get at it. But it's not only the time that you spend on it, I think that time is super important. Uh, doing that language as a background sort of language or activity is super important because it trains your brain to use and interact with that language in different situations, which is super good uh, for learning. That's why immersion works so well. But it's also the way in which you do that thing, right? So there's this kind of, I don't want to call it a myth of affinity, but there's a lot of people get discouraged at the start because they say, oh, I'm just not the kind of person who learns languages quickly. And I would just say, you know, that's maybe not as important as you would think. Of course, there are people who can learn seven languages fluently in a year. Um, I would love if you would name a few. <laughs> I'm sure they're out there, but I digress. Um, of course, some people have a greater affinity for language than others, but why would the comparison prevent you from learning or put you behind in learning a language? I would put blinders on in that regard. Um, I think a lot of people with writing say, oh, I don't have an affinity for writing. Or, I don't have an affinity for reading and therefore I'm not going to be good at it. I'm not going to get what I want to done and it's just an argument that doesn't stand when you really confront the thoughts behind those feelings and you uh, John Deloney says demand truth from your feelings you demand evidence from them that's a thought that doesn't stand and I always talk about this it's not necessarily a myth or um, something that society gets wrong, but there's this notion that children learn language faster and better than adults. And part of the reason why that is is because children view language, they can distinguish between languages, of course, and they know, they can pick up on when to use a certain language in which scenario, for example, but they, in their internal compass, I believe they view language, all languages, as one language, right? So if their parents are speaking German and they speak English at school, for example, they're going to view it kind of as one expansive vocabulary, just that they employ at different times. Whereas adults, we have a lot more of a sense of different social barriers, political barriers around language use, and we tend to erect a lot of like feelings and boundaries and borders for ourselves around learning language. Like, oh, I can't learn, you know, this set of vocabulary because of X reason, or like, I won't need to learn about that accent. And it's, you know, it's, it becomes really tedious, right? We tend to make it, the process of learning a language, not immersive. We don't 
become sponges around it, I think in the way that kids do because we have all this baggage around language. Um, and for me, when I'm working with students, a lot of it is just getting rid of the baggage that um, we have as adults. And I'll tell you what adults have that children don't, which is active study practices and the ability to sit down and focus on something for an hour. And knowing yourself to the extent that you know what's going to work when you learn a new skill, those are... I would argue, invaluable skills towards learning a language and towards committing yourself to something like writing when you decide to do it. And so, insofar as reading is a springboard for writing, writing in itself also has to have such a firm grounding. and. I think that we're more employed as adults for that activity, for that grounding, than we realize. So within this structural argument, developmentally, yes, of course, if you read more, you will write more and better, right? So children, if they read more, there's research to say that they will write better and they will write more. Because, again, the more you spend time on something, the more your brain values it, the more your brain creates pathways to recognize and to deal with it. Our brains are so incredible. They mold and change their architecture depending on what we need from them. And that's something that I think is just so critical to understand about potential about, you know, pot potential for creation, that is, potential for learning, is that our brains will just keep changing, and that's a good thing, and that's a good thing. That helps us learn, and that helps us kind of have this, again, limitless approach. I think there's a book called Limitless. I'm not referencing that. I have not read it. <laughs> I should probably, though. And I think of the greats, right, to, to exemplify this whole thing. There's Quentin Tarantino. So Quentin Tarantino famously just watched a ton of films when he wanted to learn how to become a film director and start directing really great, respected films. But he didn't just sit on the couch, right, and, and watch these films. He was doing it in a specific way and he was doing it with, he brought this insane amount of intention to it, either in the act of doing that thing or in the reflection of doing that thing, it's how you approach that thing or that skill that affects what you get out of it. So with reading, I'm sure there are authors out there, um, and I'm sure I could name a few, <laughs> they're escaping me at the moment, but there are authors out there who read books, and I think maybe to an extent all authors, right, read in order to figure out how to write, or read certain traditions especially to learn how to write, and they, it's not that they, you know, have read every book in existence, it's that they read with intention, they read with goals, they read to get better at reading and to get better at recognizing things in the writing 
to make cross comparisons and eventually to influence the way that they write. And so they bring this intention to that practice of reading, either again in the act of reading itself or in reflection on reading. And that's a huge difference, right, than what we were talking about before, which is reading is distraction, reading is addiction, reading is fun. There's a great Susan Sontag quote that I wanted to bring up um, in this post, which is linked in the show notes, the daily, the daily writing habits of 20 authors, the daily routine of 20 famous writers and how you can use them to succeed. I use this a lot um, when I am lacking motivation to do something, not always writing, but something daily that I want to do. I'll read a couple of tips from these great writers. Susan Sontag writes in her journal, quote, I will try to confine my reading to the evening. I read too much as an escape from writing, unquote. And case in point, right? Uh, Susan Sontag here is using reading in an intentional way, but not an intentional way to improve her writing necessarily. She realizes reading is an escape for me, reading is a distraction, therefore I need to kind of coordinate off to the evenings. I think in a similar respect, that's how I treat reading nowadays, unless it's, you know, horrifying classics reading, for example. So, in the end, does reading encourage writing? I would say yes, but there's so much nuance. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I understand that it's a bit longer, a bit more rambly than other episodes, but I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. We will be back next week with a short story review right before horrifying classics. So exciting. Lots happening on Patreon and on our newsletter as well. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, relevanceofliterature.com. On the homepage, you can just scroll the way down. There might be a pop-up as well for the newsletter, so that would be easy. There's also patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. That is where everything is happening nowadays with an extra podcast. Every single month in October, we're doing two extra podcasts, one on Billy Summers by Stephen King and the other on Apt Pupil by Stephen King. And I do kind of a rambly section like this in the beginning of those episodes, just talking about what life has been like and what the podcast has been like and what's upcoming. So if you like this style of episode where I'm just talking to you all, then where where are you? We're missing you on Patreon. Um, we have different tiers, so it's essentially pay what you can and pay as you go for it. And again, there's a new additional book review every month on the Patreon, so who wouldn't love that? Other than that, I hope you all have been well. I will see you in the comments.
If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.